Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Last week, hundreds of Wyoming coal miners were laid off. Now they're asking, what's next? I'll check around. I know where a few mining jobs are. and Maybe I can get on there in Nevada or Colorado. Wyoming has once again received national attention for its laws concerning shell companies. Uh, to put it simply, um, we're sort of the offshore's offshore. The Riverton Police Department has a new employee tasked with investigating bias. I appreciate the city of Riverton taking the proactive position of saying civil rights mean something. Plus a historical discussion on Grizzlies and an interview with author Eric Larson. Join us for Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Last week, the country's two biggest coal mines each laid off roughly 15% of their workers, about 500 people. The layoffs come on the heels of a number of major coal bankruptcies and are the latest sign that the industry is in rough shape. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce reports, things are likely going to get worse for coal before they get better. Last Friday, anyone driving past the Holiday Inn Express in Douglas, Wyoming, might have remarked on the large number of pickup trucks in the parking lot. If they stuck around for a while, they would have seen that most of those pickup trucks belonged to stony-faced men who emerged from the hotel one by one, clutching blue folders. Kyle Christiansen was one of them. Yeah, they, they put us all in one room. They, they told us all. They were sorry. that It was a layoff. Before receiving the news, Christiansen had worked at Peabody Energy's North Antelope Rochelle Mine in northeast Wyoming, the largest coal mine in the U.S. He was planning to retire in the next couple of years, but now he's not sure he'll have the money. I'll check around. I know where a few mining jobs are, and maybe I can get on there in Nevada or Colorado. Like many people in this part of the world, Christiansen blames what's happening in the coal industry squarely on the federal government. Obama's put us out of business. That's a common sentiment among Wyoming's political leaders and the coal companies. In a press conference addressing the layoffs, Governor Matt Mead largely blamed federal rules and regulations for reducing demand for coal and said he would continue to fight them. We have filed uh, what we believe is a record number of lawsuits uh, trying to address the situation with coal. But regulation is arguably the least of coal's problems, at least in the short term. Coal's number one enemy? The price of natural gas is the lowest it's been in 14 years. That's a television news report from December. Natural gas prices have fallen even further since then, eating into coal's markets. Global demand for coal is also falling, which has sunk plans to export American coal to Asia. Despite those daunting realities, Governor Meade has promised that he will double down on coal, but says he is worried about the potential for an exodus from the state. People need to be able to work and uh, feed themselves and feed their families and have insurance. And uh, when uh, good jobs uh, at the coal mine are lost, it's understandable that they may look elsewhere. Frank Thompson may soon be looking. Before getting laid off, he worked as a diesel mechanic for Peabody Energy for seven years. 
He'd like to stay in Wyoming, but he's a single dad and says in the end, he'll go wherever he can find a job that will allow him to provide for his son. Have you told your son? How are you going to tell your son? I talked to him a little bit about it. You know, he's seven years old, so he kind of sees it as some time to hang out. But I don't think he really realizes that this could be, you know, us moving away from here. But Thompson is actually glad to have been laid off now. He got a decent severance package, which is something he's not sure workers who get laid off down the line will receive. And these layoffs are not likely to be the last. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce. There's a lot going on at Wyoming's seven community colleges. Tuition hikes, a new funding formula, a budget crunch. The colleges are also poised to play a big role in the state's economic recovery. Wyoming lost more than 2% of its jobs last year. And just last week, nearly 500 coal workers were laid off in the Powder River Basin. Jim Rose is the executive director of the Wyoming Community College Commission. Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank sat down with Dr. Rose and started by asking how community colleges will help retrain workers amid the downturn. Two of our campuses, the campus in Douglas and the campus in Gillette, Gillette College, stepped forward and basically they became the sites for these dislocated miners to apply for everything from unemployment insurance and see what their pension benefits were. It was a kind of one-stop place and in the communities that are really most affected. That was the immediate response of those two colleges. Longer term, Aaron, I think it's safe to say that our colleges are well acquainted with and have a history of stepping forward in these kind of situations and assisting in ways that bring more immediate opportunities for education and retooling and honing skills and maybe even developing new career choices by virtue of the programs they offer. And so community colleges, I think, are just known nationwide as being light on their feet and and can put those things in place. If you're unemployed, you're options in terms of how much you pay for all those kinds of opportunities for tuition and the related costs of attending post-secondary education, those have to factor in. So we're trying to be sensitive to that and see how can we assist, how can we provide the best response to these, these individuals as well as the state as a whole. Most entities that rely on state funds are certainly facing budget reductions in coming years. Tell me what those reductions look like for Wyoming's community colleges and how those reductions might ultimately impact students. Well, as you probably know, we've, we've recently considered an increase in our tuition. So we voted to increase tuition by $6 per credit for resident students, which is not an insignificant increase, but it's one that we think is sufficiently modest to not negatively impact too many students. But that's really in direct response. And in, in cooperation with the colleges who see their, their costs escalating and their, and their revenue not necessarily keeping pace. What happened in this session, of course, with all the pressure of the economy and the doldrums, to say the least, if not in, in fact decline, we were looking at trying to accommodate reductions in our state aid budget of about $2.3 million from where we are now. In addition to that, the legislature has imposed a 1.5%, basically across-the-board increase to virtually all of state government, and that will have an additional impact. And I think some of the colleges are going to be more 
directly affected by declining enrollment, and their measures may actually be more austere than for some of the colleges whose enrollments have been a little more stable or maybe even modestly increased. I think the safe thing to say, however, is that conditions are not going to be the same for us for the foreseeable future. So we really are looking now at program efficiencies and and the kinds of things that I think the colleges do periodically, but now those efforts and exercises have become even more salient in terms of making sure that we're operating as efficiently as possible while minimizing the effect on students. You've mentioned before that affordability is, is a huge priority for the commission. With these increases, do colleges remain affordable in, in Wyoming? Well, our, the policy we've had in place has been to compare ourselves to other states. And we basically use 15 western states and we say, how do we compare with our, quote, comparators? The challenge has been we are so far below most of our comparators that you really have to wonder, well, are these even valid data? Is this even telling us anything? And so the commission has had an interest and the staff have had interest to try to say, okay, let's look at how we could really ascertain what's a fair amount for students to pay while still honoring the fact that the colleges are committed to having the students have as open and free access as possible. And this you've kind of already spoken to in terms of mentioning that different colleges might be hit in different ways and might have to examine what's going on at their campuses more than others. But just as an example, I'd read that administrators at Northwest College project a $2.3 million shortfall in in revenue for the 2016-2017 school year. How do you think Northwest College, but also the other colleges facing large shortfalls, will move forward, what their next steps will be? You know, what really complicates this is we also receive significant revenue from property taxes in those seven counties. And Park County, where Northwest College is situated, is one of the counties that's going to have potentially one of the most serious declines in their overall ad valorem taxes, which affects the revenue. But one thing I can assure you is that every one of the colleges are still keeping at the forefront the benefit and welfare of their students. At the same time, we have a lot of investment in the human infrastructure. I mean, the faculty and staff at these institutions, many are, have served for decades. And so, you know, the whole idea of reduction in force and all those things are really, really difficult subjects to even broach. And so, you know, I don't think there's one formula. There's not going to be a silver bullet that one college will find and everybody will say, well, that's it. That's how we fix this. It's just we're going to have to tighten belts and work more strategically. But I think the colleges are they're equal to the charge. Jim Rose is executive director of the Wyoming Community College Commission. Jim, as always, thanks for your time. Thank you, Aaron. It was a pleasure. When we come back, Wyoming shell companies are back in the news, and we will chat about the history of grizzly bears. This is Open Spaces. recent weeks, we've had reporters in all corners of the state, whether it has been to cover coal layoffs in Gillette, research in Jackson, or the legislative session in Cheyenne, we've brought you compelling news and features that you probably discuss with your friends. 
But this coverage is not free, and this is one of those times of year when we come to ask you to help us pay for that coverage. We simply could not do what we do without financial support from listeners just like you. If learning about issues concerning energy, education, health care, poverty, and wildlife is important to you, we ask you to make a pledge today to continue that coverage with your support. It's easy and just takes a few minutes, but it makes a huge difference. Please call 1-800-729-5897 or pledge online at wyomingpublicmedia.org. This is our 50th anniversary, and we have cool anniversary gear featuring our Sonic Bison logo that can help show off your support. Your modest contribution means a lot if you can afford it. We urge you to become a member of our leadership circle. Pledge today and continue our award-winning news coverage. Again, our number is 1-800-729-5897 or pledge online at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. The Panama Papers data leak revealed that millionaires and others may be hiding assets in shell companies around the world. Wyoming's Secretary of State says 24 of the businesses mentioned in the papers are registered here. Bob Beck reports on how the state's tax laws make it a tax haven. Shell companies are corporations or limited liability companies that don't do any real business. They all have a phone number and a listed contact. But when I tried to call one of the 24 Wyoming companies listed in the Panama Papers, it went like this. I'm trying to see if I could get in touch with somebody from Authentic Produce. Oh, no, I can't find anybody right now. What is all about? I wanted to talk to them about their business and what it does and that sort of thing. I tried to pass your information. Can you give me your name and phone number? Okay. Is, is there somebody I could call directly? No. In other words, there frequently is no physical company. To be clear, shell companies can be a place to keep your money as you prepare to launch a new business or for legitimate companies to reduce their taxes. But as the Panama Papers investigation points out, they also can be used as a place for millionaires and criminals to hide their identity and stash assets. Due to its lax laws and low taxes, Wyoming has become a hotspot for fake companies. A few years ago, the state was called the Cayman Islands of the American Prairie. Wyoming, Delaware, Nevada, and a few other states lead the pack when it comes to providing secrecy and uh, lax incorporation standards for, for companies in this country. Uh, to put it simply, um, we're sort of the offshores offshore. That's Mark Hayes, a senior advisor at Global Witness, an anti-corruption advocacy group that reports on shell companies. He says that Wyoming has passed laws requiring commercial registered agents who act as the company's local proxy to live in the state. Hayes' concern is state law allows owners of these businesses to be anonymous. Particular players like some of the law firms you've seen there have taken advantage of that essentially loophole or gap in disclosure and used it to really aggressively position companies based in the U.S. and elsewhere as vehicles to move illicit finance or illicit money. Hayes notes that only 20 of the more than 450 agents have been audited by Wyoming since 2009. Hayes wants the names of people behind those businesses to be made public. Wyoming Senate President Phil Nicholas 
disagrees. That's a policing problem, and it needs to be policed. But that doesn't mean that you change all of the advantages for people doing legitimate business activities. Nicholas knows a lot about this issue since he, too, is a registered agent for a shell company. He says the growth of shell companies is good because they put a lot of cash into Wyoming banks, which leads to such things as job creation. Wyoming Secretary of State Ed Murray says Wyoming wants a business-friendly state and current laws are fine. And my office will continue to do everything it can under uh, those laws, as well as other initiatives I'm pursuing to combat any illicit activities while maintaining Wyoming's uh, competitive, business-friendly environment. Murray said in a press release that his office is not naive to the importance of the release of the Panama Papers, but that they will not compromise the privacy of customers in the state of Wyoming. Last month, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced they were moving forward with the delisting of Yellowstone-area grizzly bears from the endangered species list. The news raised the hackles of many wildlife advocates. It's not the first time grizzlies have made headlines, though, or even the second time. Just go read the classic children's book, WAB, the biography of a grizzly, written way back in 1900 by Ernest Thomas Seton. President Roosevelt once called Seton a nature faker for attributing human feelings to wild animals. Two Wyoming authors have edited a new version of the book, Dr. Jeremy Johnston and Dr. Charles Preston, both curators at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody. I talked to Preston about how the novel got Grizzlies right and how it sometimes missed its mark. We start with a reading from Chapter 2 picking up just after the grizzly cub Wobb's mother and two brothers were shot by a rancher. When the afternoon grew warm, he went limping down the stream, through the timber, and down on the banks of the Grable, till he came to the place where yesterday they had had the fish feast, and he eagerly crunched the heads and remains of what he found. But there was an odd and horrid smell on the wind. It frightened him. And as he went down to where he had last seen his mother, the smell grew worse. He peeped out cautiously at the place, and saw there a lot of coyotes tearing at something. What it was he did not know, but he saw no mother, and the smell that sickened and terrified him was worse than ever. So he quietly turned back toward the timber tangle of the lower piney, and never more came back to look for his lost family. He wanted his mother as much as ever, but something told him it was no use. As cold night came down, he missed her more and more again, and he whimpered as he limped along a miserable, lonely little motherless bear, not lost in the mountains, for he had no home to seek. He was so sick and lonely and with such a pain in his foot and his stomach, craving for the drink that would, that would never more be his. That night he found a hollow log, and crawling in, he tried to dream that his mother's great furry arms were around him, and he snuffled himself to sleep. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, that was a wonderful reading. And I just wonder, you know, from your point of view as a wildlife biologist, what do you see there about grizzly bears 
that, you know, seems accurate and, and what maybe doesn't seem so accurate? Well, you know, there was some reference to food, uh, eating fish and uh, ants uh, and some other foods that, that a lot of people don't recognize that, uh, especially at that time, that grizzly bears did feed on. So Seton, uh, really at the underlying everything else, he was a good naturalist and he picked up on, on some things uh, that, uh, that not everybody really understood about grizzlies at the time. I think also um, the, uh, the relationship of the, the mother and the cubs and her protective nature, obviously we, we know a lot about that now, and that was certainly accurate. Um, I think the thing that, that uh, though is sometimes disturbing to a lot of us as scientists is the anthropomorphism that uh, Seton injected into the, into the story. Now, in order for, uh, for the reader to identify with the bear, he gave that bear um, more human emotions and, and feelings that w we don't know how, obviously, how uh, a bear or, or many animals really uh, relate to the world around them so well. In, in the long run in the story, I think it works against Seton and it works against uh, uh, our, our management, long-term management and conservation of grizzlies. People identified so much with Wob in the biography of a grizzly after this uh, story that, that they tended to view bears as being angry and vengeful if they had been uh, threatened or had been harmed in some way. And so I, I think in that way that it was, uh, Seton did a disservice to our relationship with grizzly bears. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about um, Seton and, and just who he was, how he ended up becoming a nature writer, and, you know, how he ended up writing about grizzly bears. Yeah, you know, he started out as an artist, actually, uh, and uh, he, uh, he wanted to be a, uh, a biologist. I think his, uh, his parents uh, and uh, other friends had said, well, that's, that's no, no way to make a living. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's not much money in that, but art may be, uh, uh, may be more lucrative. But he was always fascinated by nature. Uh, he certainly was an artist in, uh, in the original Wob biography of a grizzly, of course, and in several other of his uh, books include some of his own illustrations. And now I know that President Roosevelt coined the term nature faker. Um, what, what exactly did he mean by that term? And, and do you agree? And, and, you know, looking back, how should we, from a modern perspective, be thinking about that term? Yeah, I think Nature Faker, uh, first let's, let's look at it in a historical sense. Yeah, Theodore Roosevelt and, and especially John Burroughs really criticized a lot of folks that were writing about nature at the time. Well, Seton took that pretty personally and he went about to write uh, and to be very careful about his writing. Uh, although he got some things wrong in Wob, for example, uh, he had... Uh, Oh, he, he mentioned buffalo fish, for example, that wob on the uh, upper Grable or in the in the area. Uh, well, there were no, there are buffalo fish in the eastern United States, but they never were in this part of the world. But I have to say that Seton got more right than he got wrong. One of the things that I was most impressed with uh, in in reading Biography of Grizzly again was that he got the fundamental natural history of grizzlies exactly right and it's so important to understand in the long-term management and conservation of these of the species in, in greater Yellowstone. You know you have talked a little bit about the idea of a nature deficit disorder and that, that people are really losing touch with nature and and that through books like this you know children can start to really connect to nature. Do you feel like maybe it's possible that readers even young readers could say you know 
sure this animal is expressing this human feeling, but I understand that that's anthropomorphizing and that that's not real, but it gives me a sense of empathy for another species, another animal. I think that's well put. That's exactly, I think, what uh, <clears throat> what Seton was certainly uh, angling for. Fiction can be a very, very powerful tool. You know, let's face it, a scientist like me, we write for other scientists most of the time. And as we write for other scientists, um, that's not what the, what the general public, of course, ever reads. And so, uh, I think that, that fictional writing and popular writing in general has a really important place in uh, allowing, well, in, in helping us uh, defeat or at least reduce this nature deficit disorder. But certainly fiction and other popular writings have their, uh, have their place and I think they're very important, especially to younger readers, helping them develop a relationship with nature. I know it helped me as a, as a child. I've you know, been a professional wildlife biologist for more than 40 years now, but I really got my start reading books and, and articles by Seton and some of his other contemporaries, and it certainly inspired me and sort of fanned the flames of my growing interest in nature. We've been speaking with Dr. Charles Preston, an editor of the new edition of Ernest Thomas Seton's WAB, Biography of a Grizzly. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Melody. Thank you. When we come back, I'll speak with author Eric Larson, and we'll have stories on the headaches of renewable energy and Riverton investigates bias. This is Open Spaces. To put together a program like Open Spaces requires a lot of teamwork. We all put in a lot of time and effort to bring you this high-quality radio news program that's won multiple awards. Many of you tell us how important our Wyoming news coverage is to you. This is the time of year when we ask you to help us pay for that coverage, whether it's paying for new equipment, traveling to far reaches of our state, or paying for a Washington, D.C. reporter to keep an eye on our congressional delegation, Wyoming News coverage has a price tag. Help us continue to report on news that matters by calling right now at 800-729-5897 or by pledging online at wyomingpublicmedia.org. We offer a variety of thank you gifts at all pledge levels, but the biggest thank you will come in the outstanding news coverage you will get in coming months. If you've never pledged before, how about changing that as we celebrate this station's 50th anniversary? And then thank you for your support. Again, the number is 800-729-5897. Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. So called historical mystery writer Eric Larson is coming to the University of Wyoming this month. UW Libraries will host Larson April 20th at 1.30 in the College of Education Auditorium. And then again that evening, UW Libraries will host a dinner with Larson. Larson's current book is called Dead Wake. The Last Crossing of the Lusitania. It's a thrilling book about the sinking of a ship that many believe helped get the United States into World War I. 
His style is to provide intimate details and facts that few have ever heard and then weave them into a compelling story. Larson tells me that it requires a lot of research. Well, the whole process really takes about uh, about four years, uh, you know, the, from beginning to end. That is to say, the, um, once I get the book, book proposal, um, uh, once a publisher buys my, my book idea to the point where I have the book turned in. And during that period, I spent probably about two years of full-time research and then two years of writing, and there's some overlap in between. Um, the research, though, I have to say, um, really doesn't ever end. It just starts to starts to taper off. In the case of this book, Dead Wake by the Lusitania, it was more of a question that, that began occurring to me, which is, you know, what would it have been like uh, to have been aboard the, the Lusitania during that voyage and also during during the, the attack by the by the submarine? What would, what would that have been like? And then how do I capture a sense of that and convey that to readers? You obviously had so many journals and papers and information that you got. Was it, was that a difficult process tracking that all down? All my books have a certain pose a certain research challenge. You know, you start locally, you start reading things that have already been done and and whatnot, and then you know, for for Dead Wake, I, I traveled to various far flung archives, and and that was where the really fun stuff was. And and there, it's a question of you know, just frankly putting in the time and and leaving yourself open to documents and and so forth that um, that could be could be useful. It seems like you came across so much. Oh, there's, there's tons of material. There's almost too much um, in the case of the Lusitania. And, and actually, that's, that's another thing that drew me to want to do the, the, the story, was when I realized that there was such a deep reservoir of archival materials that that I could do something... I could write this in a way that nobody else had done about the Lusitania, and that is, you know, really um, uh, capture a sense of real life, uh, real life suspense. You know, put on my Alfred Hitchcock hat and and really make this uh, kind of a real life maritime maritime thriller. And that's because, again, this, the material was so so fine grained and so compelling. You know, when you have when you have intercepted wireless messages and you've got you know, passenger accounts and, and these two very interesting vessels converging on each other, you know, the submarine and the, and the Lusitania. I mean, it was just really a wealth of material. Eric Larson talking with us. He's the famous author, and we're talking uh, with him because he'll be coming to the University of Wyoming here on April 20th. I find myself, as I'm reading this book, almost yelling, turn around, or, or why the heck are, are they moving forward? Why isn't it anybody giving this captain more information? I mean, did you do the same sort of thing as you were researching this? <clears throat> I, I did not do the same kind of thing, but I knew, I, I knew that, that readers would. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I was startled that um, that information that, that was known had not been conveyed to uh, to Captain Turner, but at the same time, I also recognized that that, that was going to help the story. So, yeah, amen. <laughs> <laughs> Glad they did that. When you look at that particular case, it just seems like there were so many missteps, and then you have just the perfect situation where they just both run into each other. That's one of the things that, that I found so so interesting was that that so much was known, first of all, about the about the the path of the the, the, the submarine, and so much was known also about the, of course, the Lusitania. Um, but also that that there were so many other forces involved in bringing the ship and the submarine together in the Irish Sea that were just pure chance, um, and you know right down to 
right down to the fact that uh, when the submarine commander fired his torpedo at the ship, he had actually made a significant error in calculating the ship's speed. So the torpedo did not hit where he had intended it to hit. So even even down to that, there were there was just a series of of, of errors and, 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 and chance occurrences and the convergence of, of odd forces that just happened to combine. Everything I learned about the Lusitania up until now was in high school, and uh, and then you've forgotten most of it. What, I, I guess, was a couple of facts or something that maybe surprised you that you didn't know before? Well, the thing that the main thing that surprised me, <clears throat> I mean, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of any of the details, so all all of those surprised me. I mean, like for the, for example, the fact that the fact that as the ship was sinking, one fully loaded lifeboat fell on top of another fully loaded lifeboat. That was like what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also, I guess, the, but one of the one of the really important things, though, that I discovered for you know, that for me was a discovery early on was that, um, you, know, like, you know, like everybody else in America who, you know, took a high school uh, history course, we all sort of, I think, internalized the idea that, you know, Lusitania was sunk, and that's what got us into World War I, like, as, as though it were the World War I equivalent of Pearl Harbor. Well, what I learned early on is that it was not, you know. Um, the, uh, I, I would ask friends who knew about, uh, knew about the Lusitania. I'd ask them, uh, or actually who knew what I was working on, I would ask them, um, you know, how long do you think it took between the time the, the ship was um, was uh, sunk and America got into World War One? And I, I kept track, and the estimates ranged from anywhere from two days to two months. Well, in fact, it took two full years for America to get into the war. And by the time we did, uh, when when Wilson asked Congress for a declaration of war, he never once mentioned the Lusitania, because too many other things had happened in between. Well, if you can't tell, I love the book, Dead Wake, The Last Crossing of the Lusitania by Eric Larson. Mr. Larson will be speaking here at the University of Wyoming on April 20th at 1.30 in the University of Wyoming College of Education Auditorium. His presentation will be free and open to the public, and he'll also sign books following his talk. Are you going to be enlightening us on your style of writing? Uh, I'll, be talking, I'll, be, I'll be talking about how I like to do history through the lens of this book, yeah. And, and, and it's not going to be not going to be a dour, dark, boring, lugubrious <laughs> thing. <laughs> well, I'll look forward to it. Mr. Larson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Solar energy is booming across the country, but renewables do come with some headaches. In California, there's so much solar energy that on some days, there's too much. One solution is to join forces across state borders to share the renewable wealth. But in the West, that's sparking some not-so-neighborly opposition. Lauren Summer of NPR member station KQED starts us off with California's side of things. Nancy Treyweek's job is a lot like an orchestra conductor's. But instead of balancing strings and horns, she's balancing California's electric grid. It's, it's constantly solving a constant problem, meaning that you're always trying to balance. Treyweek has to keep the lights on for 30 million people at the California Independent System Operator. She relies on huge natural gas power plants, which are like the string section, putting out a steady stream of electricity. But lately, Treyweek's job has gotten harder because of this. Solar and wind power. If clouds come in, the solar power drops off. That needs to come from somewhere else immediately. So Treyweek has to keep the natural gas power plants going in the background, just in case. But running solar, gas, and wind together is becoming a problem. On certain days, they make more power than California needs. And that's not just inconvenient. 
Now we really just got to start cutting as much as we possibly can. If that's not done, then uh, you could have a blackout. So she has to tell solar farms to shut off. One way to avoid this? Join up with other Western states. Right now, California's grid runs mostly on its own. It's like an island. But if there was one big Western grid where states could share power, it would be easier for California to hit its goal of 50 percent renewable energy by 2030, says Keith Casey, who also works at the California grid operator. If you can operate it as an integrated whole, you can just operate the system more, more efficiently. And when California has too much solar power, Western states would buy it instead of having to switch off those solar farms. It's a win-win. This marriage of electric grids would start with Pacificor, a utility in Oregon, Utah, and Wyoming. Negotiations are already underway. But Pacificor isn't a partner that everyone wants to get in bed with because a lot of their electricity comes from coal. That's a big problem for California. That's Travis Ritchie of the Sierra Club. He says coal doesn't fit into California's ambitious climate change agenda, a plan that some Western states actively oppose. Will California actually lose the ability to lead on climate issues if it gives up its power to Utah and Wyoming? And those states feel the same way about California, just for the opposite reason. Indeed. Stephanie Joyce, Wyoming Public Radio here. Wyoming Public Service Commissioner Bill Russell is one of the regulators who would need to bless a Pacificor California marriage. As it's currently proposed, he's not inclined to do that. California policies, whether you like them or not, are going to be exported throughout the entire West, and all of us in the West are going to be importing California policies. Policies like the state's commitment to renewables, a commitment not shared by Wyoming, the nation's largest coal-producing state. But California isn't the only one who might benefit from sharing electricity between Western states. An initial study by Pacificor estimated its customers would save $2 billion over 20 years, which is why Russell isn't dismissing the idea outright. I wouldn't say it's dead yet. Regional grids like what's being proposed already thrive, sharing all kinds of power in the Midwest, New England, and in the Mid-Atlantic. But Western states have resisted similar arrangements in the past. Politics at the end of the day are going to be the biggest obstacle. Cindy Crane is the CEO of Rocky Mountain Power, the Pacific Corps subsidiary in Wyoming, Idaho, and Utah. She worked on some of the previous efforts to integrate the Western grid. She's hopeful this time will be different. I think it has a better shot, but there are some pretty big threshold issues to get through. If those issues can't be overcome, Remember all that wind and solar in California? The state will have to find a way to store that extra renewable energy, which is difficult and expensive. So in the end, the West may soon find that it can't afford not to share. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce. That story came to us from Inside Energy, a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. Last year at a Riverton detox center, a White City Parks worker shot two northern Arapaho men, killing one. Tribal leadership lobbied for the killer to be charged with a hate crime and pointed to a trend in widespread bigotry against Native Americans in the town. Riverton's police department decided to take a new approach, hiring someone who could investigate discrimination as Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Trank reports. The department's new community relations ombudsman shows me around the same building where she served as city attorney two decades ago. Now she's back with a whole new job. If you feel like your civil rights or the civil rights of someone you know have been violated, you're more than welcome to 
come to my office here at, at Riverton City Hall. Juby has done some civil rights defense work and worked in juvenile and criminal courts across the state. She says her job here is to educate Riverton residents about their civil rights. For example, she's planning a seminar on fair housing law for landlords. If we know what our rights are, and there are rights on the part of the landlord and there are rights on the part of the tenant, if we can get all that smoothed out, then other facets of relationships become easier and more manageable. Now, Native Americans and others who are denied housing due to discrimination finally have somewhere to go file a claim. Juvie can't arrest anybody or provide legal services, but she can mediate disputes. Her job is part-time, and Juvie says she hasn't seen many clients yet. I hope that this avenue of problem resolution will go a long ways towards helping people just have a, a more harmonious living experience here in Fremont County. She'll investigate bias crimes based on religion, color, sex, not just race. But Juvie, who is white, does understand that racial disharmony between whites and Native Americans is the problem that brought her here. I knew about the Center of Hope shooting. I was familiar with some of the other civil rights issues that historically have been a part of Fremont County. Chief Broadhead has a pattern and a history of identifying a problem and coming up with a very proactive solution, and this was another instance of that. By this, Juvie means her job. It is in response to, to complaints that I heard, and the Center of Hope shooting was sort of the final straw. Police Chief Mike Broadhead says tribal leaders have described a trend of discrimination and hostility in Riverton. The, the question came up again, which I have heard at previous meetings, that people feel, particularly around housing, that Native people can't get fair treatment when it comes to housing in Riverton. Broadhead decided last summer to create the new position. Back then, he shared with me his initial impulse, which was to hire a Native American for the job. I think without question that person needs to be a Native American and they need to be someone who will be recognized by, by both of our tribal entities as someone that they can work with. Six months later, the department hired Juvie, who is non-Native. But Broadhead says tribal leaders did review applications and conduct interviews. The group unanimously selected Juvie for the job. Having tribal input in her selection was critically important, but that's just step one, right? The next step is really up to her um, to go out and build those relationships with Native folks and non-Native folks alike. Juvie is beginning to do that. In the afternoon, she meets Eastern Shoshone Jason Valdez. He runs the Wind River Native Advocacy Center. Valdez says Juvie's new job will expose racism, and that's good. Racism is alive and well in this area. Usually border towns or towns that are closer to reservations usually have a higher rate of racism. When Native Americans go to town, we want to be able to go to the store and, and not get followed around. The, the other issues that you talk about... Baldis and Juvie talk about the controversial EPA reservation boundary decision that the tribe, city, and state are battling over in court. They agree to meet again to discuss youth issues. After meeting Jane and realizing the type of person she is, I think that she's generally interested in looking out for the best interest of Native American people as well as non-Native people and is going to be uh, unbiased in either favor. Yeah, nice to meet you. Juvie insists her race is not relevant to her job. As a civil rights investigator, I think your race has nothing to do with that. I think it's what is your knowledge base and your background and experience. And, she says, advocating for the Native American community is not necessarily her job's focus. There are any number of people 
whose civil rights may be impinged or violated that are not Native. Juvie's right, but FBI data shows, for example, that Native Americans are about eight times as likely as white Americans to be victims of race-based hate crimes. It's clear this vulnerable population in and around Riverton needs her services the most. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. When we come back, we'll hear about a new musical premiere in Casper. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Melody Edwards. A new musical premieres this month at Casper College. Mulberry is set in the late 90s and focuses on the patriarch of a family in a small town in Wisconsin. James Olm is a voice and musical theater instructor at Casper College and is the writer and composer of the musical. He tells Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard that the inspiration to write the show actually came from a difficult time in his own life. Honestly, it started right after... um that I had gone through divorce. And so it was a time where I was doing a lot of self-reflection and a lot of uh, time just reflecting on my, my past. And so the show itself, it's not about me. Believe me, it's not about me. I'm not interesting enough. <laughs> but uh, it, it definitely, it's set in my hometown. Uh, everything in the show exists in my hometown. And so I took reflections of those and tried to really start investigating questions like what it is to be a man, what, uh, how, do you, how do you approach social values and, and how they change and, and how you deal with that. And it is set in a small town in Wisconsin. Right. I suppose the present moment in it is in the late 90s, but there's many flashbacks. Mm -hmm. And it's telling the story primarily of this family. Bear is the patriarch, and he's reflecting on his relationships with his two sons and his wife. How did you explore these characters? The whole thing started, the thrust of it was uh, things that I experienced in my childhood, specifically in the 1960s. Whitewater, like University of Wyoming, has a uh, school there that was really pretty actively involved in the 1960s. And uh, specifically, there was one uh, thing that happened that was, that was very powerful to me when I was in middle school, and that was that there was some protest, and then there was a fire that was lit up in the major union of, of the university there, the University of Whitewater. And it got out of control, and it burned down Old Main, and uh, there actually was some loss of life in that, uh, including one fireman. And that hit me very, very strongly, and it just kind of, I didn't quite understand what everything was going on with this time in the 1960s. But then once my brother turned 18, which was very soon after that, then there was... Um, at that time, there was a draft lottery, and my brother and all of us were sitting in the living room waiting to find out what his number was going to be for the draft, and it turned out to be a very, very low number. And I remember all of those feelings going into that, and that was that was a major thrust for me for investigating this whole thing. And so the show actually started when I first started writing it. It actually started from the viewpoint of a 12-year-old child 
and how they react to all of these things that they have no control and no power over. But after a while, that kind of shifted, and uh, it's now the focus of the father. I think that's really interesting because it reminds me of, of how this whole musical kind of sounds. Like you think of Wisconsin Dairy Farm, and the first thing that I think of is kind of Aaron Copeland, that sort of yeah. folk music. <laughs> and when you listen to the music in this, it's definitely a little bit different. There's some electric guitar. There's a little bit more of an angst to it. Yes. Uh, wh- why did you decide to do that? Um, I don't analyze it really a lot. I just kind of go with my gut instincts. And my gut instincts was, especially when we were getting into the 1960s, I mean, that was such a powerful rock and roll rooted decade. And so not to have that, it seemed not natural. It seemed unnatural. It's kind of parallels the angst of that decade. And I think it also parallels real well the angst of the 1940s, where our other flashbacks are with World War II. And it's this uncertainty, it's this unsettledness within our souls that it's going on at that time. And electric guitar does a great job of doing that. composer of a new musical that's going to be premiering in Wyoming in April. I want to get a little bit into the the production of this. Mm-hmm. Much of it is told through flashbacks. How do you manage that when you're putting on a production like this? Well, I'm going to leave that up to the director. Um, it's a tough show. Um, my mentor, uh, Arthur Jerome, he was very strong in doing that type of thing in his work to have flashbacks and to allow the audience to be able to imagine. Um, we're kind of in a theatrical society right now where everything is, is expected to be so realistic. Um, but I think that that's going to be an important part of it, that it, there's going to be this ebb and flow of the waves of time that we can kind of go in and go out. Kind of the way that um, uh, Christmas Carol did with Scrooge, where Scrooge would would actually visit the past, but then he actually came into the past and and started talking with them, even though they didn't hear it. James Olm, composer of new musical Mulberry and music theater and voice instructor at Casper College. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for listening to Open Spaces. On Open Spaces, we're committed to bringing you excellent storytelling that includes accuracy and context. If you support that, please call 1-800-729-5897 or pledge online at wyomingpublicmedia.org. If you missed a segment or want to hear the show again, you can also go to that website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Anna Rader is our web editor. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.